0: programming throwdown episode 55 editor wars take it away patrick
1: well first i want to open up with a discussion about vacation so it's the summer uh people with children in school or in school themselves uh often think about vacation this time of year Uh, I tend to actually be the opposite since uh, I do have kids, but they're not school age. I (laughs) try to take my vacations during the school year. And so uh, that way it's cheaper and less crowded. And I'm basically a curmudgeonly old man. Um, (laughs) And then I came across an article about mandatory vacation and should it be required at tech companies. And there's an article we can link, but it, it got me thinking. And also I wanted to share, there was an interesting example in here where Um, at bank companies, companies insured by the FDIC, specifically the government has rules, and they say that you have to take at least two weeks of vacation per year for people in certain roles. And the reason being that if you're cooking the books at a financial institution and you take a vacation for two weeks, that there's a much higher chance that someone will catch that the books are being cooked while you're gone because you have to kind of make edits on a daily basis to make everything match up in the ledgers And if you're gone for two weeks and someone else has to do that, you'd have to collude with them. Um, Oh, I see. And so, you know, most of the time, collusion is – the risk is too high because you have – you know, we could get into game theory, I guess. But uh, there's a reason –
0: If you have have 100 people, if any one of them
1: breaks the rule. And then also,
0: if you have 100 people and someone breaks the rule, you don't know which one. And so, yeah, as soon as it gets more than one person – very hard to
1: which is also a convincing explanation I've heard about why conspiracy theories in general don't work is because they have too high of a rate of the defector problem like given the conspiracy someone would defect at some point um, and you would know about it and it wouldn't be a conspiracy anymore Um, and so this is basically talking about that you know someone cooking the books and then they take a vacation and then the bank is able to notice it because the other person isn't cooking the books and they weren't the person writing the article wasn't uh, in suggesting that the same thing is happening at tech companies but they had a good point which is if you force people to take at least two weeks every year consecutively away um that it forces code to be like maintainable and documented and i've noticed this before my team always freaks out if i'm going to go on vacation for even a week like you know make sure everything's in order before you leave blah 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 Uh, and then they never do anything while i'm gone because like a week isn't enough i don't even know if two weeks is enough actually but it's probably more than one week where people have to do stuff while you're gone and that requires the system to be capable of handling it because people could get sick or like go into the hospital or have a family emergency and be gone for two weeks and so forcing each person in the company to be gone for at least two consecutive weeks would uh, make sure that that regiment is followed in addition to the people going away not thinking about work for two weeks and coming back will just have like a renewed clarity to their mind about what they're working on thoughts
0: yeah that makes sense i mean I think that as far as, you know, making your code kind of more sort of document friendly and more, you know, developer friendly, like rotation is also good for that. Yeah, that's a good point. You don't want to be the guy on, you know, Team X for 10 years and and you know everything about Team X. And and no matter how hard you try to document, there's always going to be something that you is just so unconsciously, you're so unconsciously aware of that, you know, you don't document it. And so as soon as you go on vacation or change teams, everyone realizes, oh, we totally missed the the secret sauce that makes Project X work. And so um, vacations one way to do that. Rotating is another way. But yeah, I I know some people, and you probably also, Patrick, know people who never take vacation. Yes. There's a there's a max on vacation. Uh, at some point you stop accruing it. And there's people who just like they lose vacation time, and just that blows my mind. <laughs> like I just I don't think I could focus if i went three years without a vacation
1: I uh, you know sometimes i don't take vacation for a while and i really get like that like oh i really need to just take a day away or two days away but then other times you know i, I feel like i go long stretches where i'm okay and if the work is engaging and not over stressing um yeah I, I i do i also don't end up ever running out um and it depends on your company too like how many weeks of vacation and the other thing i found is that different companies. If they have like less vacation that you're able to take whenever you want and more like company given vacation, like, oh, we're going to give you this week of Christmas off. So, you you know, we're going to give you less vacation because we give you this week of Christmas off. Like that matters, too, because you can't decide when to take your vacation. Um, And so different companies have different like balances of how they give their vacation. And I think that plays a lot as well. Yeah, that makes sense. But it would be interesting to have to be away for two weeks in a row. But I wouldn't like to be told that I had to take all my vacation at once.
0: Yeah, I actually... I've always taken just kind of small, like, little mini vacations. But a lot of them, like, you know, two or three a year. Um, Yeah, I mean, taking two weeks, uh, it it would be kind of weird. Yeah, I think it would be kind of weird to
1: be gone for a whole two weeks. But I think they have good points about making sure you're... I think there's a belief amongst a lot of people that the best way to assure your value to the company and to get paid the most or whatever is be irreplaceable that no one knows what you're doing oh they know what you're doing but no one knows how to do it and so they have to keep paying you and keep you around or else everything would crumble but i I feel like that's a very fragile system that people i I don't think that's
0: sustainable
1: it does work for some people i can't deny it but i've seen more people be successful at being like over communicating documenting everything making the system so anyone could run it and then i think people companies long term do value that um yeah right and that gets rewarded higher than the guy who keeps all the secrets or lady who keeps all the secrets
0: yeah yeah totally
1: all right cool uh on to news so i have so, the first link i yeah. this is a good resource and i know so a lot of you are probably uh, i don't know this will be helpful but many of you i know are, are learning Programming and with learning programming, at least for me, they were tied together. Is when I first learned programming is when I first started encounter Linux, um, way back in the day. No, um and, <laughs> yeah. What was your first Linux? I don't even remember now. I, I guess it would have been. I think it probably some sort of the early Fedora.
0: Yeah, uh, I think I think it's the same for me. It was Mandrake, which uh, or, or, I actually don't know what happened to me. It wouldn't
1: have been called Fedora at the time. I guess it would have still been Red. I don't remember how the open source thing. They changed like Fedora and Red Hat. I don't remember. But one of those flavors.
0: Oh, I see. Apparently, Mandrake is now called uh, Mandriva, But I guess it's still going. Oh, no, sorry. The last release was four years ago. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, but but that, they were kind of tied closely together. And I will say that for a lot of programming tasks that aside from application programming, but if you're doing like system level programming, Linux seems to be the a necessary requirement. At some point you'll you'll come across it. And um, this website, Linuxjourney.com, has a very nice organization of topics and then like little I have seen this style more and more now. I don't actually know what it's called, but like wiki books or whatever, where it's like topics on the left and then you and then you're you're reading the text on the right and it's it's mm-hmm. a way to navigate a book. And they have a whole bunch of resources along with like quizzes and like highlights about various topics in the Linux operating system, like how to search, what is the boot process like, um, how how does piping work? You know, there's all sorts of different little topics. And I feel like there's a lot to learn there. And everyone makes Linux out to be like very, very hard. And, I, and it's just one of those things that depends on how you're using it and what depth you need to go to but if you're trying to learn Linux or you found yourself stuck or just looking for another resource, because I know it for a long time, it baffled me and I never really kind of got it. And I'm still yep, not like here. there are, there's those Linux people and I'm very happy that they're around. And I always like to make sure one's like within arm's reach of me. Um, <laughs> yeah, but that's, right. it's never been me. Um, but now I, you know, I I'm know enough to hurt myself and probably not enough to help myself out of the problems. Um, yeah. I'm in the same
0: boat. I mean, I've, I'm still getting to the point where I get things, like, kind of really hosed and I have to reinstall. <laughs> but, um, uh, but yeah, I think it's an incredibly incredibly useful skill. I mean, there's a lot of, um, like, useful things for programmers to, to, to know just by going through Linux. Like, for example, the idea that there are these pipes and you, uh, you know, instead of, you know, using the console to print, you know, debug statements... You uh, actually write you know, your result to the console and you read your result from what's called standard in, which is the console input. And if you do that you know kind of and you, and you and you abide by a few laws, then uh, you can be part of the UNIX stack. So someone can do you know LS, you know, pipe it to grep and then pipe it to xargs, and then pipe it to your program and it would just work. It's just kind of magic, right? Um, so it's definitely you know incredibly useful. And uh, yeah, this this tutorial looks awesome.
1: Yes, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And uh, hopefully that'll be a good resource to you um, because it is a tough topic. And even just knowing what you don't know. So this one's cool because as opposed to finding on Stack Overflow how to do something, which is also very useful, this kind of gives you this things you should be looking for as you advance in your Linux skills. Yep.
0: Um, so yeah, my news is OpenAI Gym. Um, this is pretty cool. It's It's... Like, a set of benchmarks um, for a machine learning, like, AI algorithm. Um, but the benchmarks are all kind of cool to watch. I mean, there's uh, one where it plays uh, Breakout. It's also called, like, Arkanoid, which is this game where you're a little, uh, like, a little, I guess, rectangle. And there's this ball, and you have to, like, bounce the ball off the ceiling. Um, there's, like, all these other Atari games. There's a, there's actually Doom So you can have an AI that plays Doom. And usually when you do these kind of things, like there's a StarCraft AI competition and things like that that aren't part of the gym, but but these other competitions, um, it's always like such a hack. I mean, think about it. You have to, you know, write some AI and then force that AI into StarCraft without having any kind of API or anything. It's just, it's very hacky. And so these guys have done kind of all the hacky things for you. And so... Um, they provide a very nice API where it's it just says something like here's a picture of the screen the 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 like what you would see if you were playing Doom um, and then maybe they even give you extra hints uh, like you know uh, uh, actual location where the enemies are um, so you don't have to do any image processing or anything and uh, and you build the AI on top of their API and they another thing is really cool is they have examples so you can actually um, I think one of them is like a deep neural network that can play these games, and so you can you can download this GitHub project, and you can train it on your computer, um, and then uh, when it's done training, you have this like Doom AI or this Atari AI that's like pretty powerful. So uh, yeah, this is this is super cool. If you're an AI enthusiast, uh, definitely check it out. Um, even if you're not, uh, they have you know step by step installation instructions. Like if you just want to see an AI play one of these games um, you can follow the instructions without being you know, an AI wizard or anything and uh, you can have
1: uh, something that actually works it's pretty sweet I think it's interesting the people talk about AI development in games but it's different writing the AI like you're talking about where you're simulating the player and the interface is you know the screen and you have to do image processing or maybe they give you something a little more and writing like in doom like the bad guy AI. And the guy AI, you know, they the programmers have the opportunity to expose any variables from the world they want to to that AI to help it operate. And, you know, could in effect cheat and then even turn down the cheating for different, different difficulties. But as the AI you're talking about, you don't have that level of access, especially not if it's not implemented by the game itself.
0: Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I, I, I think actually the AI of the enemies is... It's kind of interesting. I mean, if you think about it, like in Mario, if the enemies had some clever AI, that game would be so hard. Like, I mean, all the turtles and the Goombas, like they would just band together. I mean, I guess some of them are trapped by the terrain, but they would just band together and just stack up or like fall on you and you try and jump onto this pipe and just kill you, you know? And so that game only works because all of the individual patterns of the enemies are very simple. Like if all the enemies moved randomly, it just like it'd be so hard. And so it's it's kind of interesting. Um, the whole AI problem for you know the the game agents themselves is super interesting for like a different reason. But yeah, I mean this is all about being able to to play the games and uh, and uh, that's like a, a a different kind of problem, but still kind of interesting in its own right.
1: I see a lot of stuff for um, games like real-time strategy and stuff about whether the AI can quote-unquote cheat because there's this notion like if you're in civilization or whatever and and the computer knows you're taking a certain path, they could kind of choose something that is strong against that path and thereby creating a harder AI, but in a way that if you played another human, they wouldn't be able to do the same thing or at least not with certainty. And so you can kind of bake having a harder AI by just allowing the AI to cheat.
0: Yeah, definitely. And civilization is notorious for this, but you know, they also didn't
1: have many resources and, you know, I guess the nineties when Civ one came out. But But I mean, uh, that is still an interesting thing is to say that like understanding the game in a way that you can even figure out with all the information known in the world. How do you not just make some opponent that will win because you could just like spawn an infinite number of enemies or something like, but that's not interesting, but you know, Uh, something that looks like it's behaving normally even though it's has access to the world but what information from the world is it choosing to use and then still making it fun like it isn't fun if it just like kills you instantly because it has infinite health and you have you know normal health oh i see what you're saying um so you so you need to both be difficult but like in a way that feels like a challenge and feels fun at the end of the day and they have access to cheating by, like, making resources that you can't have or cheating by having the world's information, but they still need to use it in a way that doesn't go overboard.
0: Yeah, you know what this reminds me of? There's one game that does something like this, and it's um, it's like a knockoff of Guitar Hero. I think it's called, like, Bit, Trip Beat or it's Audio Surf or one of these games. But basically, you can give it any MP3 you want, and it will generate, like, a Guitar Hero kind of level for you. And uh, you can even specify the difficulty. And so this is the kind of thing where, yeah, I mean, in this case, they have to sort of understand how the music relates to sort of these game patterns and then also be able to ramp up and down the difficulty. Um, Yeah, I think these things are super, super hard to build.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and it's ultimately a game supposed to be fun. So you don't just have to make it and make it work, but you have to make it enjoyable at the end of the day. Yeah, right. The next article I have here is learn Docker by building a microservice. If you hang out on any sort of web forum or Reddit or Hacker News or whatever, you see Docker all the time, or at least I do. Yep. And um, I kind of never really got what it was. Um, now I'm beginning to understand it, but I came across this tutorial and I thought it was really well done. Um And, you know, I always like, coming. there's lots of tutorials and some of them are not very well done, but I appreciate people trying to make them. But I also appreciate when someone does a really good job of of making something that is pretty cool. So this person uh, shows you how to use Docker and it's a tutorial about Docker, but they use a real world example of bringing up a MySQL database and Node.js in a Docker image or images, I guess, linking them together and then using it to actually bring up essentially a website, a web server and I, I thought this was really good, and it's really pertinent because it's something that I think we're seeing a lot more of, Docker, Git kind of um, traction. And there's other solutions, but I think there, once you understand one, it's, in my mind so far at least, they all seem similar enough. And yep. um, this would be a great thing to learn if you're you know, in school or uh, applying for jobs or even if you're in a job and trying to see, hey, is this something that can actually help solve the problems at my company?
0: Yeah, I mean... Docker is definitely a hard thing to explain. Um, I guess, I mean, I'll try and do it. Oh, you're going
1: to try. Okay, here we go.
0: I'll try. Um, So, well, there's virtual machines, which have been around for a while, and that is where, um, you know, you see people running, like, Windows inside of their Mac or the vice versa or Linux inside of their Windows machine, right? And so what that does is it pretends like you have sort of an OS inside of an OS, uh, or, and so it actually, when the virtual machine says, you know, I want to write to this part of this disk, um, that command goes to, you know, your, your virtual machine engine, like let's say VirtualBox or something. And VirtualBox translates that into a command on your host machine, saying, oh, the person said they want to write to this part of the disk, but on the host machine, it's, it's actually that part of, the, of that disk. And so right over there, and so it has to do this sort of translation. Um, from what I understand, so like let's say you had a Windows machine and you had a Windows VM, um, then in that case, like you could make a lot of assumptions. Like you know, you don't have to sort of translate everything. There's a lot of things that like if you wanted to to play a note, uh, a music note, on the VM, and you know that everything is Windows you would just pass that command to the host and just say, hey host, you know, play a music note. You wouldn't have to like do any translation. And so I think Docker sort of takes advantage of this. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you, know, you have to keep the same OS. You can't run like a no. you know, no, 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 Mac no. Docker on Windows, right? It doesn't really work like that. And so, granted that you want the same OS, Docker gives you this whole environment that's self-contained, but also very fast and gives you raw access to, like, the GPU and things like that?
1: Uh, You did a good job describing, like, emulators, or at least, uh, like, the OS emulators, like VirtualBox. But I think the way I view Docker is a little differently. So you can... So there's a Windows version of Docker, and you can run Linux VMs in it, and that's right. But Docker isn't really... I don't know, at least to me, the interesting part isn't about running the VM. Um, And there's a whole bunch of hard technology problems they're trying to solve. But it's about this containerizing which is about saying, yes, I'm going to start a VM, but I want a way of describing what should be in that VM so that it's repeatable. So if oh, you take an example, I like I want, to, I want to write a MySQL database, so I'm just something that's going to use MySQL. So I just download one of these packages, install it and all of its dependencies on my machine, and I got MySQL running locally. And then I create my schema, I insert some data, and then I'm, I'm, I'm doing my testing. But then now I need to share that work with my coworker. Then I need to tell them or remember how I did all of that and like get MySQL installed on their computer as well. And then remember if I had to like install any patches or, or anything weird. Um, and so what Docker kind of says, it, at least in, in, the, in how I use it, this is that does many things, but is allows you to kind of create a text description saying I want to pull an Ubuntu uh, image down. I want to in that Ubuntu image run these commands to apt-get install these you know services at this version. Then I want to start a uh, you know MySQL service in that Ubuntu thing, or maybe you can just get a prepackaged MySQL Docker container. Uh, then I want to link it with a Node.js container, and so I'm running two VMs as if they're running on two different machines. But then I explicitly, but the- initially they're not really connected to anything because you don't want something bad happening. So you have to explicitly say here's how I want them to be. Talking to each other, and then now as a developer, if I get that working on my machine, I can give it to my coworker, and they can also like give them the description, and they can also have it bring up and do the same thing. And then when we're ready to deploy to you know infrastructure, that can be run on a server, so the server can pull down that that those descriptions, build the images, and run those services in production, just like we were in development. And it kind of is a way of having a, a containerized thing that describes all of that, manages the packages, manages the workflow, and says how these things should be built so that they're repeatable and deployable. And you don't have to do this notion of dependence, keeping dependencies in sync across all your machines because you're kind of listing them all together. Ah, I see. That makes sense. Uh, so I probably butchered sense. some of it as well. Um, but it, it does that by using a VM, like you were indicating. Uh, but I think, like in the production, the idea is you want the host operating system to be a very, very minimal thing that's optimized just for running other VMs. And there's, they, they call these like hypervisors or other things. And then each you know, kind of image, you want to be as minimal as possible because you don't need a lot of stuff. It's, each container is supposed to kind of only do one thing. And that's why, as this article insinuates, it's really good for microservices where instead of a monolithic, application you build you know each service kind of individually and then you they depend on each other but they're not all one thing and that has a lot of opportunities it has some downsides too and maybe we could get into that at some point but uh it is an interesting approach and it does work for a lot of people
0: yeah this is cool so i guess i mean if you're running two docker images and let's say one of them is your mysql database and that that mysql database blows up like there's some bug in mysql and it just gets out of control then like at least the other Docker image can just say, oh, the database is blowing up. Let me tell like a 404 to the users or something instead of the whole
1: machine blowing up. Yep. So, um, yeah. Yep. Oh, sorry. Yes. Um, yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no, lots I'm of good. reasons to do that, but yeah, I think that, that yeah. is a good reason. Yeah. Cool. So my new story is
0: FizzBuzz in TensorFlow. This is, uh, this is a, kind of a troll like a trollish uh, story, but it's pretty funny. Basically, um, there's this pro, uh, there's this interview question called Fizz Buzz, and uh, the idea is you print the numbers from 1 to 100, um, but if the number is visible by 3, you print Fizz. If the number is visible by 5, you print Buzz. And if it's 15, you print FizzBuzz. So if it's none of those, then you print the number. So... So, for example, it would be one, two, fizz, uh, four, buzz, so on and so forth, right? So, um, this is like highly ridiculed as, as you know, like a prime example of what not to do in, an, in a programming interview, uh, like like what kind of questions not to ask. Um, and there's just so many reasons. One, because so many other people have asked it, um, two, because it's you know, doesn't really show kind of architectural skill or, or anything like that. There's just a, t- a ton of reasons. And so this guy, Joel Gruss, uh, was in an interview. I, I don't know if the article no, is real.
1: No, 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 because he's using it to explain.
0: Yeah. He's using I mean, it to explain sure
1: TensorFlow.
0: Yeah, the article is not real. Um, there's no way, like, on a whiteboard. No, or whatever, no, no, no. You would do this. So The article is not real, but it's funny to just, like, put yourself into this space and imagine this really happening um so 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 in the article you know an interviewer asked him to do fizzbuzz um and so what he does is he uh spins up tensorflow um which you talked about in the past TensorFlow is a a google created um you know tensor matrix library that has a lot of um um, you know, objective functions, loss functions, all sorts of, like, things for building uh, machine learning algorithms uh, in, um, already included. And so he spins up TensorFlow and he builds a neural network to, uh, to solve the FizzBuzz problem. And, uh, and the interviewer is just kind of, you know, like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he just, you know, just uh, kind of goes through the, the whole FizzBuzz thing. Uh, and then at the end he says, uh, you know, I didn't get the job, um you know thanks a lot machine learning <laughs> it's just it's just really goofy and funny uh if you want to have like a nice lighthearted read and learn how neural networks work um and learn tensorflow um check this out at the end he posts the code on github so so uh it's not all in vain um check it out it's pretty good
1: i think fizzbuzz isn't a bad question i know it, it does have kind of a bad rap because a lot of people have used it but i think in general just with interview questions is difficult you need to know as an interviewer, like what you're trying to get out of the interview. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Well, they do know they're trying to stroke their ego. Um, but that's, (laughs) that's my cynical criticism of it. Um, but a lot of people don't know what they're trying to get out. And I think FizzBuzz does work for saying, I'm looking for someone who I'm looking for an easy way to test. If someone knows basic coding skills, it's not supposed to be algorithmically hard or architecturally hard. Um, and it does yeah, that. Now, point. whether or not that's useful to the company that you're interviewing for, TBD. And this person, yes, I agree. I'm certain this is a joke, that this did not actually happen, that they were trying to be facetious in saying that they could use a neural network to figure it out. But but also interesting, because maybe for any such pattern-producing algorithm in an interview, you could do this.
0: Yeah, yeah. I wonder. I always wondered, you know, I used to do these programming contests, and I wondered for some of the harder problems... If uh, if teams picked, like, maybe not a neural network, but if they picked, like, any of these sort of heuristic, like, any of these, like, loss function, ob- objective-based approaches, and then just submitted the problem, you
1: know, five times until they got the right answer, like, with different random seeds. You could, I mean, <laughs> the know? other thing is, because a lot of those have requirements on the runtime, but you could train for a very long time, so you could you know, train offline, or even I've seen some solutions which they try to prevent, but you build up a dictionary ahead of time. So you spend a really long time with an inefficient algorithm building up a dictionary. And then when you submit it, it basically knows all of the answers already, or at least... Oh, yeah, that's a very common... That might be less common now, but uh, yeah,
0: definitely when I was doing competitions, that happened frequently.
1: So you could, in theory, train the neural network very slowly for a very long time. And then at runtime, it goes very fast where you don't know you don't know of a runtime algorithm that could run fast enough to answer their question. Yep, yep. Interesting. I wonder how many would be solvable with that approach. Like if you went in solely with that being your strategy and you were just committed to knowing how to train neural networks that way really fast, like how many of the questions would be capable of even being approached and then how many you could actually get good answers with?
0: Yeah, I mean, to answer it, you have to know like, how many of those problems are just a composition of functions versus how many are real simulations? Like, there are these questions like, you know, play a game of Tetris, like, and you have to actually, like, drop the pieces and figure out oh, sort yeah, of what yeah. spaces are valid. And anything that has some kind of simulation aspect to it, you're not going to be able to do it with the neural net. But if it's like some of these more geometric problems, um, where it's just like, you know, here's a bunch of angles and you have to find this type of angle then then uh yeah some kind of neural net could could probably do pretty well um all right time for book of the show Book of the show so i actually have a bunch of books what? but here's Cheater. the catch there's only covers <laughs> oh <laughs> so this is um parody o'reilly book covers um so for people who don't know there's there's a set of uh there's a publisher called o'reilly they publish a ton of different books um Everything from, you know, HTML, you know, uh, website design to game programming to, you know, Lua. They have, like, books on everything. And they all have sort of this similar um, uh, cover style where there's usually some picture of some animal that's in this kind of pencil charcoal sketch style. Um, Some kind of headline at the top. And then some type of adjective, which never really makes sense, but it's just kind of, you know, there. And then a big title. And so um, this guy made a bunch Mm -hmm. of parody O'Reilly book covers, and they're absolutely hilarious. Um, Just just to give you guys uh, some spoilers here. One is uh, Essential Copying and Pasting from Stack Overflow. Very useful book. Putting
1: the candidate through the same junk you went through. Useless whiteboard (laughs) interviews. (laughs) Yes, useless whiteboard interview book.
0: Um, Expert resume-driven development. (laughs) oh uh, this
1: is good. okay well anyways you don't spoil awesome. all these these are funny yeah oh, i won't spoil really? them all
0: actually i'm thinking about getting a t-shirt with uh, with one of these um i don't know is that, that funny i think it's that okay funny. I mean, all right the whiteboard interviews i think i I, w- I want a t-shirt of the whiteboard interviews uh for when i give interviews like i want oh. to be wearing this. <laughs> like i want to just have it at my desk and put it on give the interview and then take it back off have
1: you so have you read the tw- the twitter feed entitled tech worker no it's I somebody who obviously lives in the bay area the san francisco bay area and um works at one of the big tech, tech companies so they have like kind of sarcastic entitled reasons why things are bad at their company um like, I'm upset today's menu at work was all Mexican. I just got back yesterday from my via in P- Puerto Vallarta. <laughs> why does the new MacBook Pro... Why, does, why doesn't the new MacBook Pro come in gold? <laughs>
0: MacBook. Oh, man, that's awesome.
1: Uh, this
0: is really good. Entitled tech worker. Yeah, if I knew sure. the espresso
1: machine was broken, I would have asked my Uber to stop at four-barrel. <laughs> these are, i mean if you're in the bear so this will make a lot more sense a lot of these are specific to the san francisco area
0: well if you watch uh Silicon oh, okay. Valley, you the yeah, tv show then then yeah you'll find these hilarious
1: sometimes i don't even wait to agree on a linkedin endorsement swapping scheme i just go out there and endorse people i don't even know <laughs> That's so true. i only joined your company last week but i think it's already gone downhill <laughs> My startup may have failed, but my self-congratulatory blog post reached number one on Hacker News. <laughs> oh man, these are amazing. Okay, I'll, I'll put
0: a, I'll add a link to nice. these um, in in the news. Whoever writes oh, these man, is, is so very
1: good. in touch with the culture. Genius. Uh, um, that's awesome. All right, my book is a uh, fictional book, Hard Magic by Larry Korea. I, I don't know if that's how you say his last name. Um, but he I also had a recommendation from him before I talked about uh his book Monster Hunters International. So this is another um it's sort of similar, like this isn't not a deep, thoughtful book. It's a kind of like really fun to read. You kind of feel like it's just a like junk food book, but it's it's good. I liked it. It's set in the I guess it'd be the twenties, uh kind of like the mobster era. And like uh alternate reality, like what happens if around that time frame, like magic had been discovered like, you know how we have mixed scientific discoveries, like you kind of discover magic and people start kind of having magical abilities. It sounds really stupid, but if you like stick with it and read it, it actually is a, is a fun read. Um, but he, this author isn't really for everyone because he does spend a lot of like weirdly, a lot of time describing various guns in the book, like in, in detail, oh. like, oh, this, you know, he's really into guns. So every time there's a gun, it's not just the person grabbed a gun. They grabbed a very specific kind of gun um and so it's just interesting like that that's one of the things that he has uh, a lot of detail about and i don't i'm pretty sure it's not very accurate to the 19 actual 1920s um but it is kind of interesting and it features like some of the work by nikola tesla and um other people and so i i I enjoyed it like i said it wasn't the most thoughtful book i ever read or I, i mean i listened to it but um i did enjoy it so if you're out there for a light fun kind of listen I, I would i would encourage you to check this i was out. going to ask
0: you if it was like a cerebral book because because no. at first i didn't know which way you we were going no. but yeah so this is like lighthearted. Um, it's not
1: a complete kind of like comedy like i recommended i think last time i recommended a book it was red shirts which was like purely right, right. just comedic i'm still going through that one it's, it's quite okay good. so that one's like, like really it. comedic this one has like i don't think it's meant to be funny like there are funny parts i guess but it's more just meant to be like a you know you just watch like an action flick it, it isn't supposed to make you yeah, wonder right. about your have an existential crisis i did not <laughs> right, have an existential right. crisis after reading this book
0: that's good you didn't feel like you were actually a magician
1: trapped in well a, i did for a, a little body. bit but then <laughs> i couldn't make the feather float with my wand and so
0: yeah that's right yeah the, the fireball didn't work and uh yeah
1: it ended badly uh anyways and so like i said i listened to this and we've um Audible has been a sponsor of the show. And so if you go to audibletrial.com slash programming throwdown, you can get a one month free trial, which means you uh, get a credit to have a book Uh, and then you can cancel it when you're done and keep the book. And so if you've never checked them out before, I have a long commute and I think you have a long commute now too, but I have a long commute. And so um, I am a paying customer of theirs and have been for a while and I really enjoy uh listening to the books I, I don't enjoy the commute but when i am like have an off day or like on a saturday it's kind of like oh i didn't get to listen to my book today um and so that's kind of a bummer but check them out if you haven't already and thank you uh, a bunch of you already have and so i'm um, really thankful for you guys doing that and if you like got a book that you like and we haven't talked about uh feel free to send us a recommendation somebody did somebody yeah. wrote in and uh recommended some um brandon sanderson books so we might talk about those in the future Cool, cool. Um, we're also on Patreon. And thank you for everyone who's been telling your friends. Someone randomly at work told me, I had a friend of mine recommend this podcast to me, Programming Throwdown. I downloaded it and started listening to it, and my jaw dropped when I heard your voice coming out of my earphones. <laughs> That's amazing. So thank you guys for uh, t- so at least one person told a friend about it. Um, and thank you guys for spreading the, the word about Programming Throwdown and uh, listening.
0: That's right. This is not Fight Club. You can tell all your friends about it. Well, and, at least it's not uh, the
1: first rule.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. We would probably get beat up in a in a street fight with almost anyone. Aww. <laughs> all right, tool of the uh, show. tool of the show. My tool of the show is amazing. Uh, I have yet to use it. Like I've, I'm actually oh, you, so know, you only think it's amazing. Process. Well, but I mean, other people have used it, and I know it works. And so once I'm done getting through uh, the process, I'm, I'm going to be really happy. So, uh, for the, um, the podcast, I was paying for an SSL certificate and it was well, not that much money. It's I think, uh, like 20 bucks a year or something like that. Um, but basically a, a variety of companies, um, got together and said, um, let's make this free. And, and, uh, there's, a, there's actually a ton of companies here. I'm not going to list all of them, but just Mozilla is one of them, Electronic uh, Frontier Foundation, um, so on and so forth. And they, they got together and they made this thing called Let's Encrypt. And the idea is um, it's just free SSL certificates that, that are meaningful, right? They're not self-signed, right? I mean, they, they're signed and, and they're a trusted source and all of that. And so if you have a personal website, a business website – uh, you know, small business website um, that's not encrypted, or if you're paying for encryption and you don't want to, um, you can use this. Let's encrypt. It's completely free, and uh, um, there's not. It's not like a beta free kind of thing. Like the plan, the whole point of it is to be free forever. Um, so it's it's amazing. I mean, it's it's it's. Uh, and just to to recap, if you don't know, I'm sure everyone knows this, but just in case. Um, You know, when you go to a website, um, there's HTTP and there's HTTPS. The S is, I guess, stands for secure. And so what happens is, um, under the hood, when you, um, you know, send some information to that website, um, you encrypt the information. And then the website, you know, decrypts it with the help of this sort of third party to mediate all of this. Um, And so... It's not something you can just do on the server by yourself. Um, you need to, uh, you know, work with one of these um, groups to have a um, a secure channel that is sort of authorized. And so, let's encrypt will let you do that. So, so at this point now, there's no reason not to have a secure website, unless you are on Blogger. <laughs> so our blog is is on Blogger, and Blogger custom domains don't support HTTPS. Oh. <laughs> So, so, ironically, our blog um, isn't on HTTPS and can't be, which you know is okay because you're not, you know, logging in on our blog or, or giving your credit card or anything like that. But in case someone comes back and says, "Oh, you know, programming our comm isn't HTTPS," so it's it's we can't do it. Uh, I'm looking into sort of how to fix that, but uh, at the moment we're a little bit stuck.
1: We're programmers; we should write our own microservice blogging platform. Yeah. Well, I, no, yeah, no. I'm just kidding. Super,
0: I, I looked into moving off Blogger, and uh, as you can imagine, we have this is episode uh, 55. 55. So we have a lot of a lot of content, a lot of comments, uh, and and moving all of that is 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 not
1: trivial. So, well, we heard about AIs. Just make a TensorFlow to do it for us. <laughs> yeah, I need to contact Joel and have. Joel, oh yeah, uh, give him a whiteboard interview. <laughs> All right, mine is an iOS-only game. I'm sorry. It does not. I did look in Advance this time. I'm prepared. It is not available on Android, and it is not free, or it hasn't been free, at least that I've seen. Um, and it's called Warbits. And this is an Advance Wars, I won't say clone, because that sounds like an accusation, very, very similar-like game. So if you never played Advance right. Wars, I guess it was on Game Boy Advance and maybe Nintendo DS. Um, yep. Some one of the portable Nintendo consoles. Yeah, I think there's one on 3DS as well. Okay. It's a franchise. And this, I don't know exactly what you call it, but you have you know people and they are on squares. You have military troops and it's you attacking another set of bad guys. There's just like a really fun, yeah. like a strategy game, but not uh, like deeply strategic game. Um, and yeah, so these games are called SRPGs. Oh. for It comes
0: from strategy. I think it's either strategy or squad. I don't know what the S is. But yeah, I mean, if you if you like Advance Wars, Final mm-hmm. Fantasy Tactics, Fire Emblem, you know, Shining Force, if you like these games, look up SRPG in in you know the app store, and
1: and there's there's a decent collection. Oh, I never knew that's what they were called. So now I have something to look up. Yep. This is like Final Fantasy Tactics as well, but I feel like those games are yep. different than this. Like they're more serious, and there isn't really a role playing to this. I mean, there is like a story, but I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean RPG just really means that
0: you know there's upgrades. I mean RPG, like in this context, really just means that there are decisions and they are permanent. So, but I
1: don't remember in Advance Wars there being any like real permanent decisions. Am I misremembering? Um. I thought like that, each. I thought that you could battle to battle. Like a unit. It's okay, anyways. It doesn't matter. Warbits anyway. is on iOS. If you're interested in that kind of game or you never tried it before, you can check it out. There's been several others that also do it, but try to kind of do it differently, uh, and it just never kind of captured the nostalgia of Advanced Wars. So this one does a really good job because it's basically a <coughs> um, and uh, <laughs> I didn't say that you know but like the all the same basic units with the same basic traits and principles are there um, and the story behind it is a little wonky, but you know, as always, it's kind of laughable to see how these people try to come up with stories to justify what is just a fun game.
0: Yeah, like Advance Wars the burn there's one called uh like Burning Ruin or something like that. Um but yeah, I mean the whole premise of that was there's like a flower and if the petals all fell off the flower,
1: like humanity's lost. And you're like, okay, come on guys. <laughs> yeah so I think the story in this one, and I haven't gotten all the way through it yet, is, is instead of fighting real world wars people have decided to fight simulations of real wars and so you're like a simulation general and okay. you're yeah like the world has gone pacifist but they still feel like things need to be resolved using I, it was it's very conflicted okay so you can check cool. it out i'll check it
0: out i love these type of games so i'm definitely in all right um
1: time to talk about the thing that is going to get us lots of hate mail
0: yeah, I mean, we uh, we anticipate an incredible amount of hate mail. Uh, one thing, one disclaimer is no. Actually, uh, that's not. These are oh, all. Oh, these are all. I mean, things that either Patrick or I or both of us. They're all IDs that we have used. Um, there's a ton of IDs that, that that I'm sure we haven't used that that could be great. But uh, uh, you know, uh, we these are mostly one-on-one. Uh, some of the IDs that 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 uh, that we've experienced, and we've we've gone through a lot. We're not married. To a particular IDE, uh, either of us, and so I think that that's nice because uh, together we have pretty good coverage on almost all the popular IDEs.
1: So um, I actually don't know that we'll get a ton of flame war talking about editors because I, I don't intend to state anything absolute. Well, maybe a couple of things, um, but instead I want to talk a little bit about like editor philosophy. So I think one of the things that to be productive as a programmer, the editor you choose should have like some common traits. Um, One is that there should be some level of customization to it. Um, That is that things can be shifted into a way that you like it. And there's a balance here where you'll hear people argue about if I make it so customized that when I go to someone else's computer, I can't get things done. And ultimately, you spend most of the time programming at your computer. So I feel like it's worth making it customized to you, but maybe not so much crazy customization that you're doing customization just for customization's sake. And that's probably a hard balance to strike, but don't go so far where you're spending more time updating and tweaking stuff than actually like doing your work. Like that's probably too much. Yeah,
0: definitely. Like I usually, you know, once maybe every year or so, I just say, okay, I'm going to take some time to like improve my workflow and improve my editor and things like that. But yeah you shouldn't there shouldn't be something that you just do every week or every day That'd be brutal.
1: and some people do some people are like i will spend however much time necessary to create a way to shave off one extra keystroke in vim um or vi and and then the, okay sure what i mean if that makes you happy i like i'm not gonna tell you you're wrong that's not the way i tend to operate
0: yeah. Same um
1: here. the other thing I think when you're choosing an editor that you should think about is the searchability. And I mean a couple of things by this, but just is the ability to find things in the code, especially when you're in code that you don't work in a lot or is new to you. And I think this is really important and this will separate out in my opinion um what makes some of things not so good choices for people. Um and the other thing I mean about searchability is specifically and I and I thought of this the other day when I was someone was talking about how they switched to using VI because they thought it was so much better. And in reality, like I kind of asked them a couple questions, and it seemed like they were switching more to VI because they wanted to be able to say that they use VI, which, okay, that's fine. But they weren't mm-hmm. very efficient in it, and they weren't pursuing a way to be efficient. And the, the thing I kind of used as, at least for me, one measure of how efficient you're being in your code is how long it takes when you're looking at a piece of code you've never looked at before. And you come to a usage of a class and you don't know what that class does and some method or a method, it doesn't matter. Some methods being called a function. How long does it take you to go from that function in that file to where that function is defined? So what learning about what that function does, reading about the comments, all of that stuff. And I think you want to work to minimize that. So in some cases, your tool may or may not provide that out of the box. So some of the things we're going to talk about, like the IDEs and I, I we're going to talk about what integrated here means in a, in a minute but they let you do that very easily like it might be a right click and a go to definition or an you know a button like an F3 that when you're on top of something it takes you to the place in the code so it has understanding about your code but that isn't to say you have to use one of the integrated things you could there are ways to do this in vi and maybe we can talk about that like c tags or whatever but for me yep, yep. the way I'll if you, not that I'll, I try not to be a mean person, but if you come to me and tell me like, oh, my solution for editor is better because VI is really awesome. I'm going to want to know like, oh, how do you have it set up? And I've seen people with incredible, um, stacks of stuff that their tools and configuration and, um, intuitiveness of the code where they really can bounce back and forth. And I've seen other people that, when you ask them to handle this problem i've just described you know they go to another window they open the shell they grep through a bunch of files and they're trying to like manually inspect each line looking for which one is most likely to be the one where it's defined and to me that's just I don't know, it takes you out of the context it's too slow it doesn't work for me yep. and and i think If you are doing that, you should either seek to find a way to improve that or switch to another solution that might be better for you. Don't just do something because it's wearing the hair shirt is what I've heard it called for some programming languages where people used to wear a shirt made out of some animal hair that is like really itchy to remind them about like the fact that they're going through this punishment. Um, (laughs) And so some people do that. Like I'm a good programmer because I do things the hard way. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, that's not that's that's never true. Well, <laughs> I that, mean, you, whatever. I, I, that's not that's yeah, not for I, me.
0: I, yeah, I, I agree. I think that you have to be able to, you know, I mean, editors are made to edit files, but code is really not about files. It's really about this web of functions, and and uh, like how those functions are mapped to files. Like it depends on the programming language, but it could even be just arbitrary, and and so. Um, And so like yeah, an editor that, that, you know, if you have Vim or Emacs or, you know, one of these editors
1: and, and you only can look at one file at a time, then you're not really doing it right. Yeah. And yeah, there's many ways to solve this problem. And I think asserting that your way is the best way is also just not. Cool. You're not helping. Um, I think different yeah, people yeah, totally. think differently. Some people think it's great to sit in front of a keyboard or to say that I can use a computer from 40 years ago that doesn't have the cursor key. Okay, great, sure, whatever. But the chance of me running across that in like my day to day is just really low. And I think it's yep. also very good to try stuff occasionally to see if you like something better and to see if hey, maybe I do fit in with the way this thing works. And instead of all editors needing to be usable by everyone, I think some of them have realized they just should be used by some people and that they'll just cater to those people. And I think that's perfectly fine. And I I agree, Jason, we are calling this editor wars, but we're really talking about editing in the context of not writing a novel, but like editing code. So working in a code base, you know, a Git repository, like those kinds of things all together. And I think that there are some solutions which you'll hear IDE, integrated development environment, or what I'll call like a stack or roll your own, where an integrated development environment, you typically have an editor where you can edit code, some notion of a project explorer or file explorer where you can kind of go to the different files that you have or classes in your code, some way to navigate and then often has a way to invoke the compiler or even the compiler is kind of built into the IDE. And all of that is done kind of within one executable that you launched once and kind of had that as a default configuration. A roll your own would be more something, we'll we'll talk about in a minute, other solutions where it primarily is just uh, editing of a single file, but then there may be ways for you to choose plugins or other applications or use, uh, you know, something within Windows or Linux kind of customize your window to have other features as well and then you've kind of created a a set of linking and plugins and or or found them on the internet ways and shortcuts to go between the different programs that are together helping you do your code programming debugging compiling loop pushing all of that stuff um yep
0: i think those are kind of the Um, two
1: approaches that i've seen
0: yeah definitely um so just to knock a couple of things out uh the simplest like IDE is just a text editor. The, I mean, a pure text editor. So this is like Pico or Nano on Unix, or just Notepad or WordPad on on Windows. And these things don't really know anything about code. They don't do any highlighting or anything. You can only look at one file at a time. But um, if you're really kind of desperate, <laughs> like there's um, there's you know Notepad on every Windows machine. You're guaranteed it's going to be there. Um, and, uh, you know, you can you can write anything in them, but we don't recommend
1: it. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that this fails is there isn't really customization options for the most part. Like, you can't yeah, say... that's right. It, w- it won't do things like when I go to the next line, you know, automatically indent that line based on what I type. Like, if I typed a brace, it needs to indent over. If I didn't, it needs to stay at the same spot. You know, it doesn't necessarily understand, like, tab and shift tab for, like, getting rid of indentation. It, has, it just doesn't have those notions Um, So it isn't efficient for editing code and isn't really customizable. So as Jason said, last resort, you should pretty much, if you're using these, you should really look for something else.
0: Yep. And then there's what I call like IDE as a platform. And so this is where, as Patrick mentioned, you're going to have to do like a pretty decent amount of heavy lifting to get this where you want. Um, And so this is, you know, where the Emacs, the VI and the Vim um, editors belong um, and, and uh, you know, you could argue Sublime and Atom are
1: here as well, but but we'll talk about them later because they're more sort of futuristic. Um, so I don't think these but, are ideas a platform. I, I would refer to these more as, like, keyboard-focused. So both Emacs and VI, for me, the, the big thing they share in common is saying that you should be able to do everything from your keyboard without having to lift up and go to the mouse.
0: Um, well, so... So I've, I've only ever... Well, I've, I take it back. I've used Cursors, Curses, Emacs before, but uh, I'm definitely like a heavy mouse oh, okay. user. And I still use Emacs. Yeah, I think the big thing about this is um, it supports kind of everything. Like, for example, when TypeScript came out, um, there was syntax highlighting. You know, when the language came out, there was an Emacs module. Like, the developers of TypeScript released an Emacs module. And so... Um, I guess TypeScript is a Microsoft thing, so Visual Studio would work. But but uh, you know the thing about Emacs is that it can edit almost any file and and, and has syntax highlighting for almost every language. Um, and because it's so extensible, and also because the bare bones Emacs is so poor, oh. um,
1: <laughs> you, you are going to start <laughs> getting flame.
0: Your... Well, no, I mean I love Emacs, but I'll be the first person to say that like you know default Emacs kind of makes my eyes hurt. Um, but you know, there's so many modules and so much support um, that it's just you can you can do everything in Emacs uh, well. You know, I don't believe the same is true for outside of Emacs and Vim. Um, like if you want to do Eclipse, but the project is a Node.js pro- Well, Eclipse actually is getting there. Um, but you know, like let's take like IntelliJ or something, and the project is Node.js. You're kind of hosed. Um, and so I feel as if, like, as a developer, you have to make one of two choices. You either have to say, I'm going to do almost everything in Emacs, um, or you have to, you know, generate sort of this ensemble of of editors, like maybe Eclipse for most things, but then if you have C++, you have to use, you know, uh, like uh, Visual Studio or something. But-
1: but I mean, I think um, a hybrid approach is actually reasonable, and you can use it somewhat. A lot of a lot of people, a lot of people, a lot of people, don't, a lot of people don't. I think it's. I'm pretty sure it's true for both. But in Eclipse, you can have it support both Emacs and Vi style uh, text editing, and so you can drop it into a. Di- so it, it handles normal behavior by default, but then there's a way to basically tell it to emulate as if you were in an Emacs or Vi window for just your text editing place. And I feel, actually, we should mention that. So so people might not be familiar with this, but like, you know.
0: If you're, like, editing a doc in Microsoft Word or something, right? Like, you would select a block of text with the mouse, and then you you know, click the B to make it bold. Um, and there's there's keyboard shortcuts, like Control-B and things like that. Um, <clears throat> but, but they're designed... It's designed around the mouse. Like, using Microsoft Word without a mouse would be super painful. Um, but these editors, like Emacs and Vim, as Patrick said, they're designed to work without a mouse. And so if you want to go to, you know, line 1000 in Emacs, you would do escape GG 1000. And that sounds like kind of painful to have to remember that when you could just, you know, scroll with the mouse wheel. Um, but it, it actually saves a pretty decent amount of time. Um, and uh, and some of the keyboard strokes are actually quite worth it to, to kind of memorize. Um, so the, the catch with that is if you're used to, you know, escape GG and that's your muscle memory has just attuned to that, then you go to Eclipse, you're just going to end up typing G's mm-hmm. all over the place. Like this happened to me in the beginning. Like uh, I'd just be editing a file and all of a sudden i type two G's and it's because I wanted to go to a line. And so so you can actually customize. Most editors that we'll talk about let you support um emacs keys and
1: i think that's the biggest difference about like emacs and vi is they allow you and i'm not going to get into which is better or worse i i tend to use vi i just never gotten into Emacs. so when i use vi or use one of these i use vi um but i think that they allow you to have different ways of operating so like jason said you can go to a specific line when i used eclipse initially like i just never had a desire to go to a specific line that wasn't the way i operated um, because it doesn't really support it natively. Or, you know, I was reading some interesting stuff about VI where people are saying, you know, one of the good things about not using the cursor keys and forcing you to using HJKL for cursor navigation um, is that it gets you into a different way of thinking and then it allows you to, for instance, start getting used to, as you're saying, like going to relative line numbers or going to relative places within your code and so your navigation becomes more intuitive about jumping whole lines instead of, you know, single lines at a time or, or whatever, jumping s- sets of lines or repeating actions a number of time instead of manually doing it every time. So reducing the number of keystrokes needed and Emacs and Vi are very powerful, both out of the box and with a level of customization of everything that they allow you to do and helping you reduce your keystroke count. And yeah. some of that requires you shifting um, so your mindset for good or bad.
0: Yeah, it definitely is a learning curve, no doubt. Um, but I feel this way about you know coding and about email is you know I spend hours every day doing doing either of those and so if I could shave off ten percent it's significant.
1: Yeah, I you know um, it it's hard. It depends on me. Sometimes I'm cranking out code and I'd agree with you, but there's a lot of other times where the limiting factor for me isn't how fast my fingers can push the code into the editor. Right, like I'm limited. I tend to, and it's just the nature of the work I do. I tend to need to actually think about the stuff I'm writing, and so it takes a little longer for each line to come out for me. And so in that regime, the editor doesn't get in my way, not normally.
0: Right. Yeah. No. Definitely. I don't think typing faster is really helping anybody. But
1: no, it does because there's sometimes you just really want to bang out like boilerplate code or whatever, and you just type, 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 you know, as fast as you can go.
0: Oh. Yeah, Emacs has this like uh, boilerplate thing where you can hit F three. Well, we're not well, going to play this Emacs game because you, you can say F3.
1: Emacs or Vi has insert like just literally okay, solution sure, to any problem. Sure. You want to make your yeah, coffee Emacs from within Emacs? Thing. Great. There's a plugin for that. Sure. Yeah, yeah I got yeah. it. But um, <laughs> we'll, we'll do that the whole time. Yeah, that's a fair
0: point. Um, anyway, so so there's there's Emacs Vi, and then um, when Java came out, the thing about Java is, um. Java had uh, GUI, like had UI libraries that shipped with the language. So in other words, anyone who is programming in Java could make like a window on the screen and draw like menus and things like that, which had never really been done before. It used to be, you know, sure, you have C++, but... You know, you need to download a bunch of libraries.
1: I don't know that it had um, never to, been to done to before because I think some screen. of the other more obscure languages had done it before. But it was kind of like, oh yeah, there's like first widespread TK, and, widespread. Yeah, sure, that's fair. That's
0: fair. So, um, so what happened is a lot of people at that time there's sort of this explosion of developer visual developer tools, and and IDEs are obviously one of those. And so, um, there's NetBeans, um, Eclipse, and IntelliJ. Which are all uh, Java-based um, IDEs, and uh, I, you know, I used to use NetBeans. There was a time where Eclipse was very slow and crashed all the time, like early days of Eclipse. Um, but as soon as Eclipse became stable, um, I switched to Eclipse, and uh, I've never used IntelliJ.
1: Um, I haven't. I, I was going to say that JetBrains is like the people, and we talked about them a a while ago, having the kerfuffle with changing how they were charging people. Um, but oh, I've right. just never used it. I know a lot of people, though, who really say its it doesn't matter how much money you want to charge. Like, this is totally worth it. Um, but, no, I've mostly used Eclipse for, for my Java.
0: Yeah, I've also used Eclipse. And
1: Eclipse actually is starting to get
0: Emacs status, where um, if you're a programming language inventor and you don't support Eclipse through some plugin or something, you you... Um, are kind of doing yourself a disservice. And so so you're starting to see a lot more support now um, for, you know, everything from, you know, TypeScript to Groovy to, you know, Scala. Um, they just are providing these sort of... Uh, it's actually cool. In Scala, you can actually click on a button in the website that launches... Something in Eclipse that installs the Scala I plugin. <laughs> like I don't know exactly what's going. <laughs> yeah, it does sound like a security hole, doesn't it? I don't know exactly what's going on there, but um, it's basically like a one-click thing from the Scala website, which is pretty cool. Um, I don't. Think I'm, it's just, I'm just. Harassing it's the you. Same it's as when you go from iTunes. Yeah. So. Um, so it's legit, but but the uh, uh, so yeah, clip I'm actually starting to use Eclipse more, and I might. Um, you know, completely switch from Emacs to Eclipse because Eclipse is, is that was my big fear with all of these is that you know if it didn't support a language I would have to use Emacs anyways and uh, but now Eclipse is getting to the point where it supports
1: and it is everything. true that like y- you should never believe you're going to just stay in a single application I mean even in Eclipse you might have to drop into something else to Manage your project. I mean, you can open the project file, but there may be a better way of managing your project or or handling Git. Like for instance, a lot there are Git plugins for Eclipse, but I never use them. I always just drop back to the command line to do it. That's just because how I wanted to do it. Um, And so I think a hybrid approach is still reasonable um, for all of these, where you you know still need some sort of stack or roll your own, whatever you call it, the set of tools you're going to use. But the other thing is, so far, I think all the ones we've talked about have been cross-platform, except for like Notepad, which is only on Windows. Um, but Emacs, sure. Vi, NetBeans, Eclipse, IntelliJ, or I know at least Eclipse and IntelliJ, I think are cross-platform, so OS X, Linux, Windows. Yep. Yeah. NetBeans okay. NetBeans too. as well. But, but all of these will run on you know kind of any platform you are. But I'll, I will say one of the caveats is things like Vi and Emacs. You, it takes a little longer when you're on like Windows. Uh, and OSX isn't too bad with like something like Homebrew, or I guess it used to be MacPorts was the, the way you used to do it, but getting the normal Linux tools there. Uh, but they kind of assume, and people, if you look for help in VI or Emacs, are going to kind of assume you're on a OSX or Linux uh, system. Uh, and they're going to suggest you to use tools that are specific to those systems. And then whether or not they're available on Windows yep. just depends.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, so yeah, there's a section uh, I made a section called corporate IDEs, and so these are not, crass, um, not This
1: is platform.
0: Yeah, that's right. These are your you know Visual Studio and your Xcode. Um, I've used Xcode a decent amount. Um,
1: Xcode's okay. Um, I dislike Xcode, but you know, Visual Studio. The last time I used it had gotten a lot better than when I had first used it, and I've heard it's gotten even better. So I feel comfortable saying Visual Studio is probably pretty good now.
0: Yeah, I mean, Xcode fails the, you know, I want it to support many things test. Um,
1: you know, in other words, like if I'm in Xcode... You're making an OS X application uh, or an iOS or something within the Apple ecosystem. Sure, sure. But even
0: that notwithstanding, if I'm doing that, um, you know, I, I'm writing this application and I write a JSON file. Now I want to open that JSON file in something that, Feels good where it actually does folding of the JSON structure and things like that. Um, like I'm pretty sure Xcode will just open it in a text uh, file. And I mean I'm not I'm not 100% sure, um, but I'm like about JSON specifically. But I've but I've had this issue with all, both of these Visual Studio and Xcode where there's going to be you know some file it doesn't understand, and because the plugin support isn't there it's going to be just a pure text file and I'm going to have to switch to Eclipse
1: or Emacs or one of these other things, Um, you know, if I want to... If it's really something going to understand the file, yeah. Also, I think some of these have different levels of integration. Like Visual Studio is mostly geared towards its own way of describing a project and Xcode similarly. You need to have an Xcode description of the project, at least as far as I know. Um, But things like Eclipse too, like depending on what project management your team is using, it has support for most of the big ones, but it it can run into issues. but it's not as bad because it isn't assuming that it's a very specific project description. Yeah, I mean, if you're, if you're doing your development correctly
0: in Eclipse, you should be able to just throw away the project file, and it, it should just be able to just be regenerated. So if you're using like Maven, Gradle, CMake, um, or any of these systems, um, you can just auto-generate the Eclipse kind of project whenever. Um, but you're right for the other ones. I mean, CMake can technically do Xcode and Visual oh, okay. Studio, but um, it's not as good. So, like, you'll typically have to make changes to the project file. So there
1: are some edit. new editors that are making inroads for people liking. The first one is Sublime, which is written, as far as I know, by like a single guy. And it came out a few years ago. I guess we, we should have looked it up. But um, it's a free to try, and it gives you a warning Um if you don't buy it so you're supposed to buy it after some amount of time um, and the nice thing about sublime is it has a pretty good ecosystem around it for plugins and understanding code natively um, but it doesn't try to integrate really as far as i can tell with any sort of like project understanding so you can point out a folder and it'll see a folder structure on disk but doesn't try to kind of integrate with your project structure and allow you to like add new files to your project you know kind of in an intuitive way um but it has a nice like overview on the right side where it shows like your code but like shrunken down because it turns out you can recognize what the code structure where you are in the file um just by like having looked at it i didn't really think about it before but when i saw that and i used it i was like oh that's really cool
0: um yeah yeah that makes sense um, one sad thing about Sublime, I just looked it up. It's no, not it's open not. source. It's
1: it's paid um, and it's written by... Yeah, it's like a, a company, right? So it's not open source.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's actually the exception. Uh, well, maybe I, we should have put it in the corporate IDs, but but all of the Java ones we mentioned, Eclipse, and that means IntelliJ, Emacs, Vim, um, are all open source. And, uh, um, you know, I mean, are you really going to be hacking on, Eclipse, on Emacs? Probably not, but... The fact that it's open source means that if you know some new language takes over uh, and it just becomes super popular, like it's kind of happening now with um, um with React, where it's this uh, JSX file that has like HTML and stuff embedded in it. Like if something like that happens and really starts to take off, and you you join a company and they said, okay, you have to write these JSX files, um, you know, Sublime without
1: Sublime being no, but the parts of it that do that are where you can write them or get modules that are open source. So it has the right hooks in place. It would be like oh, if you okay. wanted That's to yeah, have it have, I don't know, some sort of new feature that wasn't there. I, I Like some new... Yeah, or it goes, or it goes deprecated and, he does, and the person doesn't release it open source and then like, you can't maintain it. But Sublime came up because it was known for being really, really fast for a graphical um, editor. Yeah, right.
0: It has some pretty cool features. I like the little, like... Yeah, that's what I was trying apps. to describe. I was doing kind a poor, of... poor job of it. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, another new kid on the block is Atom. I've actually been using Atom a lot lately. It's pretty awesome. Um, so a couple of awesome things about Atom. One is it works over SSH, so you can actually point it at a SSH repository and you can edit files over SSH, and it just makes that experience completely painless. Um, um, so it, it also has some kind of searching, which also works for the SSH. Like, I don't know what sort of black magic is going on there, but the, the remote
1: development is Well, it's also, like, um, known for... I guess it's all written in JavaScript, and so you can kind of see... It's basically right. rendering... We talked about this before, I think, a little... It's, an, it's not called Embedded, but it's a, like, native JavaScript app, So, like, it hooks in natively, but is all just running kind of JavaScript, so you can see how it's choosing to do the rendering and then, like, alter it if you're so inclined. So it's saying it runs on Electron, which is one of the frameworks for building um, apps using JavaScript and web technologies. Um, And it's made by the same people who make GitHub. That's right, yeah. Um, And uh, all of the sort of visual
0: features of the editor are just HTML and CSS. So um, a ton of people have made themes like I like this uh, and I'm totally forgetting the name, um, but I have a certain theme in Emacs that I really like. And uh, someone basically just cloned uh, that. Yeah, I should say almost all of these
1: have themes, even VI. I I don't know about Emacs because I don't use it, but even VI, you can find essentially themes for like ways to kind of have it have a color scheme or palette that you like. Um, but I do like the one that I guess initially uh, the first one I really encountered it was in Sublime that like default color scheme that Sublime chose in dark I really liked that.
0: Yep, that's actually similar. I, I use a Clarity, the Clarity color theme in in Emacs, and it's also a dark theme. In general, I mean, do, you could do whatever you want, but I, I feel like dark themes are just way better on the eyes. Um, you know, so to just to explain, dark theme is where is where the the background is black or dark and the at least. text is, you know, a bright color as opposed to what you're used to you know when you read things on the web or something like that.
1: So now some languages um, are built in together with their editors. So this would be like MATLAB when you open up MATLAB you come right to like the console and you can start doing MATLAB operations or they have a file explorer built in to like operate on MATLAB projects. It's not to say you can't write those in another editor, but it they kind of ship their own and it, it isn't really meant to support things that aren't about MATLAB. Yeah, right. Yep.
0: Um, there's Studio for
1: R. It's very similar. Um, there's IPython Notebook. Same kind of so idea. So I think more and, like because... Spyder would be like a Python-specific editor. We should talk about IPython another time. It's called something else now, IPython Notebook. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, Jupyter, uh, which we should talk about because I've actually come across several instances of that now. It's catching on a lot and I, I really like this approach. But I think more like Spider or something, which is, and there are yeah, others. That's a good point. Um, but so the point, the, the overall point here is when you're language
0: specific, then you can do some unique things. Like, for example, in MATLAB, um, there's a section of the editor where you can see all of the global variables. And that only makes sense. Because you're writing in MATLAB, like I mean, they wouldn't be able to
1: do that for every language. Well, they it would just be um, you wouldn't typically find it because it'd be really hard to support. Yeah, like I don't even know what that would mean. I mean, because well, like, like if you have Python and you had language. like a Python console and you were you had variables, you could have something tracking the current variables in scope.
0: Yeah, yeah, and so so there is that. There's a there's a Qt iPython thing which is kind of like that. Um, but again, that's, that's like the editor is pipeline. Right, but it would be harder to Python, do that
1: like for like C++. Like it would only make sense if you're currently debugging an application um, or Java. Yeah, sensing. exactly. And so,
0: yeah, that's like one example. But There's other things where like, you know, that editor can provide something that only works because it's running MATLAB. There are also lots um, of uh, language specific
1: ones for the Lisp and functional languages as well. I don't use oh, them routinely enough to be up on like what the best ways of using them are. So anytime you have kind yeah, of like the interactive prompt, um, things like Python, MATLAB, uh, a lot of the Lisps um, have this closure has it um, where you have it's you know a command prompt and you're typing stuff in and you can develop that way. Um, you can do some interesting stuff with language-specific features versus something that's compiled and run like Java or C++. Those features don't make a lot of sense for.
0: Yeah, right, yep. Um, So there's some editors that we've used in the past are no longer with us. uh, Yeah, are dead. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So CodeBlocks is one. Um, CodeBlocks was really cool before uh, CMake and these other build systems came out. Um, the thing about Code Blocks was you had this Code Blocks project, and under the hood, they would sort of figure out what to do if you're on Windows, if you're on Linux, if you're on Mac, um, and uh, and so you would you could just like I could take this Code Blocks project with the source files and everything, and copy it to someone who's running Windows, and they could just install it with Code Blocks, and it would build a Windows program instead of a Mac program. Um, that was like super cool, but the cool part of that was actually the cross-platform Make file system, not the editor. The editor was not that great. And so once CMake came out, it kind of torpedoed uh, code blocks. Um, another one is Borland Builder. I actually never used this other than in school. I only used this when they were teaching
1: C++. Did you ever use Borland? Um, I think very, very limited, like once or twice, because it was like on a computer I used, and I just wanted to try it out.
0: Okay, yeah. So when we were learning C++, uh, we learned on on Borland Builder, and it was, it was, you know, uh, it, was, it was terrible, <laughs> but it it uh, died a painful death. Uh, and the other one is Free Basic. I don't know uh, what was your first language. C, Patrick.
1: Yeah. Really? I mean, I, I did some stuff link. in Basic, oh, so. but like I kind of put, like, you know, more, more like following examples and like making kind of play things a little bit in Basic, QBasic. Oh, yeah. But the first one I like really like okay. learned and understood from like a language perspective was C.
0: Okay. I'm in the same way as you then. So, so, well, actually, for me, it was C. But, but yeah, so, so Basic was just kind of one that, you know, I just made like little dummy apps that I copied out of a book. Um, and, and so I used FreeBasic. But I mean, I'm not saying FreeBasic is like none of these are actually dead you could probably get borland builder and code blocks and free basic are still around but they're just kind of dead to us (laughs) so actually i had this book um it was like a choose your own adventure book um but to know what page to go next you had to enter in this free basic program on your computer and then run it and it would tell you the answer it was so cool like i mean but it's you just should just be able to do just, it in your
1: head, right? Your, or was it, like, so complicated that you couldn't?
0: No, it was, it was like, uh, a recursive okay. function. You couldn't, yeah, yeah. But, like, uh, you know, the fact, like, you would type this in, and then you'd hit go, and it would and say, I saw, like, Python the hard way. That sounds like basic the insane way. Yeah, it was basic the insane way. But, yeah, I mean, that was that was pretty cool. I wish they kind of did more like that, where they integrated...
1: I mean, now as adults, it's not interesting. But for kids, I think it would be great. So you were saying that you did TypeScript in Eclipse. Do you? Use, what else do you else use when you write JavaScript? I don't write much JavaScript, so I don't really know.
0: Oh, um, well, I've never done TypeScript in Eclipse. I'm pretty. I know that there's a plugin now, but
1: uh, all my JavaScript I've oh, done again. using Emacs. Right. So I didn't know yeah. if there was like a preferred way. I, I assume something like Atom is really tailored to that because you know they flaunt that feature um
0: yeah maybe so if you um, hey if you have
1: a good write us in and tell us what you're if you write javascript day-to-day tell us what you're using
0: yeah or anything if there's if you use any editor we haven't mentioned um you know post on facebook post on on the blog um you know post on on, on g plus and things like that and uh, let us know because uh, we'll definitely you know we'll do a if there's something really cool, we'll do a uh, yeah. We'll make a tool of the, the, the show
1: sponsored by someone else, or sponsored is the wrong word. Featuring some other guests, sponsored by you, <laughs> sponsored the Patreon. You. Uh, I don't know. Um, so thanks everyone for <laughs> right. listening. Our viewership continues to go up. Um, we we have some more interviews kind of scheduled, but I think we're going to try to cut them down a little and and probably go to like uh, uh, something a little less frequent because we enjoy talking to you guys, and I realize like we've it's been think we had two episodes in a row that were interviews and i, I really had like a build-up yeah, of right. like tools of the show and and books i wanted to share so we're going to probably try to yep. get, get you know hearing the normal flow of the episode a little more frequently
0: yeah totally totally i mean there's so many more languages. i'm dying to learn julia that's oh my, my one i've been working is on to... is elm oh, oh i've never okay. heard of elm okay so we, we definitely have two two really cool shows all coming right
1: till next time
0: See you later. The intro music is Axo by Binar Pilot. Programming Throwdown is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution ShareAlike 2.0 license. You're free to share, copy, distribute, transmit the work, to remix, adapt the work, but you must provide an attribution uh, to uh, Patrick and I, and uh, share alike in kind.